five centimeters an hour, 10 centimeters an hour. You know, it was a hard slab fracturing it. It was just This is Matt Promomo, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I know what you're thinking. It's not the 1st or the 15th of the month. That's right. It's bonus episode. Hope your 2021 is off to a great start. I'm going to keep this introduction short and just head on over to the feature presentation, an interview with... Matt Promomo. But first, we're going to we're going to cut to Wes to announce the winner of the first Primo Snow and Avalanche El Profesional Snowsaw giveaway. That's right. The snowsaw that's lightweight and cuts straight. If you don't end up winning this snowsaw, go on over to primosnowavalanche.com and order yours up today. Oh, hey everyone. It's Wes Gregg here. Hope you all had a safe and happy new year and a special happy new year to Josh Landis. You won yourself a new Primo snow saw. Congratulations. Without further ado, here we go with Matt Promomo. All right, Matt, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Caleb. Really psyched to be here and I'm honored that you're going to have me. All right. Well, you've been on the list for a while, I might add. been trying to track you down. Um, and then the people wanted you. I, got, I was getting emails and messages on social media saying, we want Matt Promomo on the show. So you should feel good about that. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I was hoping you could introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your backstory and biography you know, I know a few things. I know that you're a avalanche forecaster for the Northwest Avalanche Center right now, living in Leavenworth, uh, Washington. And I know that you've had a diverse background in avalanche education, in guiding, and in forecasting for the public and private industry uh, throughout the world. So there's a lot in there, a lot in your career, and we're excited to learn more. Totally, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm speaking here from Leavenworth, Washington today, the native lands of the Pascuosa and Wenatchee peoples. Um, yeah, I got, you know, how I got here is a long story, but I have had quite an interesting and, uh, you know, long career. And, yeah, I'm super psyched to share some of the stories that I that I have from my experience. Um yeah, I, I guess, you know, I can kind of start from a little bit in the beginning. And I've always been interested in snow from a young age. And I do remember some, you know, I grew up in the Northeast uh, in upstate New York. And I remember some epic Nor'easters growing up. And being, uh, 
really inquisitive when just after like 24 hour period, we'd have, you know, a couple, three feet of snow on the ground and, and some really massive drifts. And then I also remember like in the springtime watching the, the snow melt and, you know, running through the snow banks, water running through the snow banks and melting tunnels through the snow banks, much like you see today in the springtime on glaciers or on big like avalanche cone debris, you'll see um, big tunnels that, that form in the, the summertime where the water runs underneath those avalanche cones. So, you know, for me, I, I've always been interested in, in snow and avalanches. And yeah, so I remember when I was uh, like seven years old, my best friend from across the street and I saw snowboarding on on like a ESPN on a TV and we're like, oh, yeah, we need to get one of those snowboards. So, you know, we couldn't really find one, but we decided to make one. So we had uh, his dad cut out a piece of plywood for us. And, and from there, we found an old sled, plastic sled, and cut the bottom of that out glued it to the bottom of the piece of plywood and then we fashioned some type of bindings and walked up to the nearest snow-covered hill and started sliding down. So, you know, for me, I've, I've been wanting to get out there and slide down mountains for as long as I can remember, really. And that's kind of led me all over the world, uh, that that mission of, like, wanting to, to spend time in the mountains, you know, finding bigger mountains and uh, and learn about snow and and how it changes so yeah right after high school ended up moving out to mammoth mountain in california with a couple buds that i grew up with and i was working as a lifty and you know i didn't have any avalanche training at that point but my friends and i would go out in the mountains and and hunt for powder Basically, like after the storms passed through, we'd skied up all the powder in the ski area. We'd go out and, and hunt for powder. And, and I do remember at one point my, my folks came to visit and I was like, you know, I really need an avalanche shovel. So I convinced them to buy me a, a shovel. And so then it was like me and, and some friends out there. It was like I had a shovel. Maybe another friend had a shovel. But we didn't have beacons. We didn't have probes. But we were getting out there and, and you know, learning from experience. And that same year was the first year that I ever saw an avalanche. Um, I was working as a lifty and had a break and had a big powder day. I think it snowed about a foot or so with some wind, you know, kind of a classic storm slab scenario. But I didn't know a whole lot about anything back then and just looking for some fresh snow. I went off the back of the mountain looking for this place called the Hole in the Wall. If anybody knows Mammoth Mountain, they, they probably know this place called Hole in the Wall. It's a unique geologic feature where there's a an arch that spans a chute that you can ski through. So it, it's pretty amazing. And I just heard talk of it. So for me, it was like this mythical place. Like, oh, I want to go find Hole in the Wall and ride it in powder, you know. So I was going off the backside of the mountain by myself this one day and came upon a chute. And it was, you know, a pretty steep drop in. And it seemed like it descended in the direction that, you know, I believe this hole in the wall was. So I looked at it. And I was like, okay, this this looks like a great drop-in. And as any good snowboarder would do, 
walked back up the hill, put on my board, got some speed so I could launch into it. And so I, I launched and grabbed, did a big mute grab. I landed on the slope, and the next thing I know, it fractured all the way around me. And I think I rolled maybe once before I dug my toe edge in and was able to get a hold. And, you know, from there, I just kind of watched this slide continue on down and create a decent-sized powder cloud and, and just settle. And I was just kind of watching it, watching it. And it wasn't like I – I wasn't really big enough for me to be fully taken and buried. But at the same time, it was like, wow, that was an avalanche. So for me – that that was one of the defining moments in my, you know, in my life of like, okay, I want to learn about these things. I want to know everything I can learn about them. And I want to keep, you know, doing what I, I want to keep getting out here and learning about these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was, I was quite humbled, but also quite inspired to, to keep learning. The next year, I found myself going to school at Colorado Mountain College. I was going to school for the Outdoor Recreation Leadership Program. And nowadays, they, ha they actually have a really good avalanche science program that Ethan Green and some others developed. And I probably would have been going for that had it been around back then, um, but it wasn't. And so it seemed like a, a great program to to get me out in the mountains and to be a guide. And, and um, you know, avalanche forecasting, I didn't really see it or even know it was a career at that point. Um, but I did know that I wanted to be... I wanted to work outside and, um, you know, I wanted to work outside in the wintertime, especially. Uh, my second year, Colorado Mountain College, I I'd started to get to, to learn the lay of the land a little bit. A couple of great things about Colorado is that it's got elevation and it's got a tricky snowpack. You know, the snowpack is frequently plagued by, by depth or from the cold temperatures and, and the shallow nature of it. Um, but it's, it's pretty cool because you can get out there in October and you can, you can generally make turns fairly reliably in October and late in the spring as well. So one year I was out with a friend and I think it was like late September ice climbing up this gulch above Leadville and, uh, you know, noticed that this chute had looked like it had snow in it. So naturally a week or two later, I went back with another friend and, we were going to go try to ski this chute that came off a peak called Mount Sheridan, which is a 13,700-foot peak in the area. And, you know, we showed up that morning. It was a beautiful day, but there had been a little bit of fresh snow, and, I, you know, I noticed something looked different about the, the feature. I was like, okay, the surface texture looks a little bit different. It looks like there's been some wind in there, um, you know, Talked about it with my partner, um, but we, we went on our day and we actually ended up walking around on rock, going up the valley, swinging wide and coming up onto the peak and, you know, getting to the top of the chute from the top. So we were, we're standing there on rock. We're looking down at the chute and, and something in me just didn't feel quite right. Like I just had this gut check. I was like, you know, this thing looks different. Not really sure what it is, but I'm I don't like it. And so I, I made a point to tell my partner, like, okay, stay here for a second. I'm I'm just gonna put my board on and, and slide into the chute a little bit. So I put my board on, slid down about five feet onto this windblown surface that was pretty firm and you know, something just told me to jump. So I, I just jumped on the slope and pushed down pretty hard. 
and the whole thing fractured. Uh, it was pretty wild. I, I remember the sound still to this day. It was kind of like, you know, it was, it, it was a hard slab fracturing it. It was just it kind of sped up as it went. And we just watched in awe. We're like, wow, look at this thing. It, it fractured up my feet, ran down slope. Uh, you know, all these big blocks just started rumbling down and got to witness this awe-inspiring avalanche. It was a hard slab avalanche, a D3 hard slab that ran to the valley bottom, covered up some previously bare rock, and, uh, you know, it was pretty loud as it roared down. So we were like, wow, that was that was amazing. That was really kind of wild. Um, so, yeah, we, we skied down the bed surface, which was quite icy, and ended up having to take our, our boards off to walk through the hard debris, which was like the size of a Volkswagen, you know, refrigerator-sized debris, really massive debris. So that event as well, um, I learned quite a bit from that. And that same year, a couple of weeks later, I went to my first snow and avalanche workshop. I went to uh, the Seesaw that they had at Copper Mountain that year. And I had met Dale Atkins, who was a forecaster for the CEIC at the time. And I remember telling him about this avalanche and it was, it was pretty interesting because I wasn't really, I was kind of nervous to tell him about it. I was like, did I do something wrong? Should I tell him about it? Is he even going to care? You know, like, does he already know about it? Um, all these thoughts were kind of going through my mind where I, I didn't have a whole lot of background at that point. I'd taken a level one. I'd taken a fundamentals of snow and avalanche course um, through Colorado Mountain College. But I had enough experience to tell me um, you, you know, I had enough experience at least to, to realize that something wasn't quite right and, and, you know, kind of acted on it, I guess. And, and it, what happened, like the way it all planned out was, you know, Dale was super receptive. He was like, wow, he was just in, as, uh, amazed by the slide as I was. And I thought it was really cool. And it, that was really my first introduction to the avalanche industry as a whole was, was being at that workshop and, I just remember coming away from the workshop thinking like, wow, I really want to be a part of this. Like I met some really awesome people there. Um, everyone was really welcoming. Dale was, you know, just gave me confidence that I could keep learning about this stuff and, and that I wanted to do it as a career. So moving from Mammoth to Leadville, Colorado, you, you experienced two probably pretty different types of snowpack early on in your career. Uh, what were some steps after your studies at Colorado Mountain College? Yeah, so right after I finished up there, I went down to Silverton and uh, got a, an internship with the Silverton Mountain. And it was only like their second or third year in operation. And I was very fortunate to work with some amazing individuals at the time, um, like Doug Krause and Pat Ahern, uh, Mike Barney, and Skylar Holgate. Um, you know, so that was that was an amazing experience. And that season while living in Silverton, we all witnessed a, a very large cycle. It was somewhere on the order of a one in 30 year magnitude avalanche cycle. Um, it's 2004-2005 in January. And uh, yeah, I just remember after the storm, like a couple days later, 
we were getting towed on a snowmobile up to the ski area to go check on the, the base tent because we thought it probably had collapsed collapsed because there was so much snow. And we were, you know, we were towing over these massive debris piles with like 12-inch diameter trees sticking out of them here and there. And in places, you couldn't even really see where the road was. And it, so it was pretty amazing to see that storm cycle. And, you know, since then, they've they've had even larger cycles. But for me, that was that was pretty wild to, to be a part of that. Um, you know, one thing they do there in the early season on a regular basis is boot packing, where they line up teams of 10 or so people and stand side by side and boot pack down the slope. And the idea is to work hard in the early season snow so that it doesn't change over to depth or become a problem later. And I, I remember after that storm, we were out there doing control and um, some of the slides that, that we got, you could, you could look around and you could see little boot pack marks because the slide had run on that depth or layer, even though we did the boot packing. So, um, yeah, for me, that was, that was pretty, pretty informative. And, you know, that, that question that has kind of long been floating around the, the professional avalanche industry for a while is like, well, does, does boot packing work? Does it not work? It's, it's certainly more complicated than that. And it's, there's a lot of factors to it. Yeah, it does does work sometimes, but you know, in this case, it hadn't. Um, but yeah, after that, I just spent one year there, and and after that, I I would have gone back, except I had already um, lined up a job back in California. So the the Sierras pulled me back, and I worked as a ski patroller at Sierra at Tahoe for a couple of years. So Matt, it seems like you've bounced back and forth between. Uh, a supercontinental snowpack, right, in Colorado, Silverton and, and Leadville, Colorado, and and the the more maritime snowpack of of California. Um, did you ever split the difference, go to Utah or anything? Yeah, yeah. I did live in Utah for uh, seven or eight years after my time in, um, in California. I ended up moving there. And yeah, I, I love Utah. It's an, it's an amazing place. It's an amazing community. Um, started working there as just guiding. And, you know, actually at the time, during the summertime, I was working down in Chile, avalanche forecasting for a mining operation, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to again. Um, but that was a pretty stressful job. And I, I, you know, moved to Utah with my girlfriend at the time and just got a job um, making pizzas. And I was like, man, this is great. It's low stress. I could just ski every day. I could just make pizzas. Um, but, you know, soon enough, a job came up with the, the Department of Transportation there. And I was like, okay, this is the job for me. So I, I ended up uh, applying for that job and I, I got it. I was, you know, ecstatic. So I joined the UDOT Avalanche Forecasting Team there at Provo Canyon. Um, so yeah, I, I worked there for, for four years. And then, and then eventually settled in up in Washington. Yeah. So I met my, uh, my wife when I was living there in Utah, she was working up at the Alta Lodge and she's from Washington and I had spent a little bit of time up here before 
specifically I'd been through Leavenworth and done some skiing in the mountains around here and we were both pretty psyched on um, you know living there long term and so we kind of decided to, to uproot and, and move here and it, it's been an amazing experience so far um, yeah my f my second year here I I started doing observations for the Northwest Avalanche Center, which at the time, you know, they're, and they still are, but we've gone through quite a, a growth spurt in just the past four years where it used to be just um, three meteorologists, you know, working from the Seattle office. And they, they realized they needed to get more people out in the field um, for, for better information. So they started this observer program and I was lucky enough to be able to, to be in the right spot at the right time to help out with that when I was here in Leavenworth. And then, you know, the next year I got hired as an avalanche forecaster for the Forest Service, uh, you know, through through the Avalanche Center. So that's that's where I am today. Um, yeah, we're, we're looking at starting our forecasting operations here like in the next week. So, yeah, winter's coming right at us. Right. I should add that, that we're talk we're chatting on November 11th. Um, so whenever you're listening to this, this is, yeah, Matt, you were just describing to me kind of the first couple of snowfalls in your forecast area and tracking some of those early season layers and trying to figure out where maybe the early season rain snow line was from a week ago or so. So, um, even though the forecasts haven't yet come out, I'm sure there's still lots, lots of work to be done. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I have a lot of holes in our knowledge gap right now. Um, but I do know a few people are getting out today. So yeah, hopefully we get some more information that comes in. And But this weekend, yeah, we're looking at a, a pretty juicy storm. So whatever is getting buried, is, it's going to be there for a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned holes in your knowledge gap. What do you, what do you mean by that? And like, just talk a little bit about your thought process when you're going into a season or say when you're about to formulate an avalanche forecast after a big storm, what, what do you mean by gaps in your knowledge base? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about what's, what's out there on the ground. Um, you know, this time of year in, in the early season, like the, the fall, especially the mountains become a little bit less accessible where, you know, you, you can't really go hiking on trails so easily but you can't really go skiing so easily because of the, the shallow snow cover or, you know, you can't even take, you can't take a snow machine out yet because you're going to, you're going to do some, some damage to it if you start hitting things underneath the snow. So you, we kind of go through this, this period in the fall where we just don't have a whole lot of information on, on what exactly is out there on the ground. And yeah, we, you know, we got a weather forecast and we've got our, our instrumentation, but that can only tell part of the story, really. It only gives us so much. Um, you know, we kind of really just, we just need to get out there in the field to, to see what's out there right. on the ground. Right. And what, what, uh, what forecast area do you specifically work in? Yeah. So I'm a forecaster for what we call the East Central Zone, uh, Stevens Pass and the East North Zone. So it's basically, you know, every, everything north of I-90 
up to the Canadian border on the east side of the crest of the Cascades. Okay. Yeah, that paints a good large, picture. Yeah, oh. quite a bit down. Right. And what 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 is the what's your typical user group there? Is it heavily backcountry skiers and snowboarders, or that there are a lot of snow machiners? Are there people that are just out snowshoeing, hiking around? What does your user group look like? Yeah, you know, quite a bit of everybody. Um, we've got a lot of snow machiners for sure. Uh, quite a few backcountry skiers, a lot of mixed, you know, out here, the access to all the mountains does require a sled, um, where you're, you're taking the sled and up a road somewhere and then maybe parking and then going skiing. Um, but there's also just miles and miles of, of groomed sled roads that people just take sleds out, um, you know, rally around in the bowls up high. And, and then, you know, we do get quite a few snowshoers, um, and, and climbers too. So really, you know, quite a, a diverse mix of everybody. Sure. Uh, I think, I think, you know, in general, we probably get more skiers up on places like Stevens Pass, you know, that it's kind of a hot spot for backcountry skiing. Um, and then just, you know, depends where you go out from there, but we've got a lot of different zones and, you know, some zones are, are mostly sledders and, and some zones are, mostly skiers and, and whatnot. One question I had for you is, is do you, with different objectives for different user groups, do you utilize different strategies to try and reach different groups within your forecasting message? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the better ways to go about it is to, to be one, to be a, one of those users and to experience what they experience. And um, so that's, that's kind of what I've, I've been trying to do and just to be versatile with it. It, it. It's fun to do everything out there. Like I love riding a sled. Um, I love skiing. I love snowboarding. Uh, I even enjoy being out there on snowshoes from time to time. And, you know, I definitely like ice climbing. So I think having the ability to, to think like they may, like someone in, in, you know, snowshoeing or, on a sled that can help, um, just to, to be, you know, putting yourself in their shoes and, um, you know, seeing the world from their perspective. So, so I do try to incorporate that into my writing for sure. Um, you know, I try to, to drop little hints into different, um, different activities. And, and one thing we're trying to do is, is be a little more, um, inclusive with it with the way we write, um, not just gearing towards like scanning or skiing, but, but also like riding, like riding a sled or, or hiking as a snowshoe hiking. Mm -hmm. And, and, and how is the connection with the motorized crowd? I think, I mean, if we were to not beat around the bush, I think mm -hmm. we could probably easily say that like our goal is to better, um, connect with the motorized crowd, right? I, I think at a lot of avalanche centers, it's, it's very focused on skiing and snowboarding and, and how, what's the reaction? Are you guys connecting with that motorized crowd well up there? Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely something that we're continuing to work on. Um, I think, you know, most of our backgrounds are in, in skiing really. That, that's probably how we got here. Uh, in, into public forecasting 
But I think more and more we're, we're starting to see, you know, forecasters that, that do have a bit of a sled background. And, and so I think organically, you know, bringing, bringing those folks up into the, into the industry is, is just, uh, you know, one of the, one of the better ways we can do it. And then we're like right there, you know, working together, learning from each other, learning from each other's perspectives. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, personally, one thing that I'm trying to do is just trying to take a sled out more without skis and just ride it. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that is fun to do. Mm-hmm. Here's a question from our mutual friend, Jonathan Spitzer. Well thought out question, Spitz. Thanks for, thanks for throwing this out there. But what is a short-term and a long-term challenge that you foresee in the avalanche forecasting industry? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, there's we face quite a few challenges, really. And, uh, you know, the short-term challenge, I think, is, well, the pandemic. And we're looking at probably having a, an influx of, of uh, folks getting out there this season that it's probably going to be challenging for for everybody out there in the backcountry. You know, it's anytime you have like a, a big influx of new new users in any sport, there's going to be a little bit of a of, of growth period there where you know it, it may take time to like some to learn some of the ethics and, and some of the some of the ways that we go about doing things that, that are you know kind of built in as a seasoned, you know, backcountry traveler, somebody kind of probably already does these things, but, um, yeah, so that, that could be challenging. I think one of the bigger things that we want to keep is the access. We want to make sure that we just, we keep our access open. And, um, you know, a concern that I definitely have is, is when, when we see people trigger avalanches onto open highways, um, like, as in, in Colorado, uh, last year, there were a couple of snowboarders that triggered a slide onto ice, not onto I-70, but onto an access road near I-70. That was, that was a pretty interesting case. And I think it, it went to court. I, I don't know, you know, it may still be in court. I'm not really sure, but, um, you know, just, just the fact that things like that are starting to happen more and more, this collision of, of a number of things coming together. It's kind of inevitable, um, you know. But but I think what we want to what we want to take away from that is is we want to we just want to keep our access to these amazing places open um, as much as possible. So so I think you know being mindful of uh, of where you are and how you're riding is is one of the most important things that we can we can get across, as well as you know the newer users making sure that they have the education and the gear they need to to do it safely. Right. I think uh, that's a really good point just to kind of bring new new users into the fold and be gentle with them. You know, like nobody wants to get yelled at out in the backcountry. Nobody really wants to be doing the yelling. So just give each <laughs> other some patience and, and try and inform other users in the backcountry to those ethics that that maybe are ingrained in a, a more experienced user, you know, share the knowledge. Yeah, totally. And and really, you know, the backcountry community as a whole is a very positive group. And, um, you know, I, I think we just, in general, the community does a really good job at welcoming new folks into it and not being, 
you know, like territorial and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Where as you, if you compare it to surfing at all, like I was out surfing a few weeks ago on the Washington coast and, and literally got yelled at by this guy. He basically just told me to go surf somewhere else because I was, I was like not good enough to surf where he was. <laughs> it's like, Oh man, this is, this is not what we see in the backcountry, And this is, you know, it's just totally interesting. Uh, change of pace mm-hmm. we do not want to see this in the backcountry we want to see people being positive and uh you know supporting one another right so that's sort of a that's sort of a short-term and a long-term challenge if you were to kind of look out a little bit further um any other long-term challenges that you foresee or or changes in the road yeah you know, there's, I think in general, the avalanche forecasting is, is generally underfunded. You know, it's it's always a struggle, especially for the the public avalanche forecast centers just to stay afloat. You know, pretty much all of them in the U.S. are, are some type of a combination of a public-private partnership, whereas the nonprofit side raises a lot of that money so that the the avalanche center can operate. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that, you know, it's, it, it's a, uh, it's a constant challenge, I think, to, to get that funding. And, you know, the forest service, which the, um, the governmental side operates through, we don't really get all the money that we need through them. We get some of it, but, you know, a lot of our operating budget also comes from the nonprofit and then just individual donors um and and volunteers so i think you know in in the future for public centers you know securing some type of a of of funding which you know hopefully it could go through the legislature and and you know long-term funding of these programs could be an amazing thing but also you know another side of that is is uh you know some coordination and interworking between um, like departments of transportation and and public centers, I think there's definitely room to uh, to expand upon those places. And you know, I guess w- my thoughts are going to to looking at like private landowners that you know people that live in avalanche terrain. That's that's a a big gap that we have, and and a, you know, big potential that we have to. Um, where we, where we can make some improvements in this country is, uh, you know, zoning laws all across the board are all different. Um, there's, there's places where, you know, people live in these houses that, that are in avalanche paths and they may or not, may not even know it. Um, if you're up there at Alta in Little Cottonwood Canyon, you're going to know it. And, you know, it's required to, to have some type of a engineering in place that so your building can withstand an avalanche, but elsewhere in the U.S., um, like down there near Creed, where the sheriff's house got, you know, uh, knocked down by an avalanche, I don't think there was anything in place previously. And, and you know, that cycle was a, a very large cycle, like you know, larger than anything anybody had seen. But but now that we know these things can happen and we're seeing them happen, I think there's there's definitely room to uh, to improve there, like with our early warning systems, and you know, reaching out to 
to landowners and that sort of thing. There's, there's definitely a lot that we can do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Another example is the, in 2014 in Missoula, off of Mount Jumbo, there was an avalanche that took out a couple of houses and unfortunately um, ended up with a, a fatality from just somebody sitting inside their house, got wiped out by an avalanche. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's some good insight there, Matt. We're going to shift gears here a little bit and I want to hear a little bit more about your experiences forecasting in Chile for the mine. What was that like and how'd you get into that and what were some challenges and and rewards of the work down there. Yeah, my time down in Chile was just an amazing time. I just feel so fortunate to to have experienced it. Um, so I worked for this gold mine called uh, Pimenton. And the size of the mine, they, they say it's a small gold mine, but you know, really it's like a medium-sized operation where we, we had anywhere between maybe 80 or 100 people down there at the this camp at any given time. So, you know, small for Chilean standards where they have really, really big mines, um, but still, a, you know, a fairly large-sized operation. And, yeah, I guess you can kind of start from the beginning here that got lucky with the job. Just, uh, you know, this, this guy, Tim Lane, hired me off a whim basically didn't have a whole lot of experience. I didn't really speak that much Spanish, but I, I'd heard of the place. Um, Glenn Vitucci actually had written an article about it in the avalanche review. And so I, I gave him a call and, you know, talked his ear off about it. And then Matt McKee, who I later started working with, uh, on UDOT, I'd also spent some time there. And so I got in touch with him and, you know, decided like, all right, this this sounds like an amazing opportunity. So I ended up, you know, flying down there with not a whole lot of idea of what I was getting into. But sat down with Tim Lane, who, you know, at the time he was in his mid-60s and had been living down there for like 30 years. So he was, he was pretty much the man. Uh, he kind of knew the ins and outs of the avalanche industry in the country. And, you know, for a large part, he, he was responsible for bringing a lot of, a lot of the avalanche education to the country. So, you know, he's kind of a legend down there. People look up to him. Um, a lot of avalanche workers learn from him directly. Like, you know, he took them under his wing and, uh, taught them a course. And then, there you go. They're they're like ready to go, and they're and they're working these avalanche jobs in, in pretty amazing high mountain environments down there. So he he's definitely responsible for uh, for a lot of the a lot of the culture kind of you know getting brought down there. For sure, there were people you know before him, um, but to me, he was a, a mentor, and I learned a lot from him. Um, I do remember like that first day when I showed up. You know, I went straight to the office and, and signed my contract and that sort of thing. And and then we went out to lunch and, and he laid it all out. He was like telling me all about the mining operation, like not not so far as like how the train works and how the snow works, which is like, that's what I wanted to hear. Right. But he's talking about like, who does this? and Who does that? He's giving me like insider knowledge. 
even though I didn't speak much Spanish at the time, um, you know, I felt like at the end of that conversation, I was like, oh, I, have a, I, have, I think I have a decent idea of like how this operation works. And, you know, he continued to, 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 to take me under his wing and, and we went up there to the mine and checked it out. And I was just blown away. The, the terrain is just, it's massive. It, it sits up the, the camp, the mining camp called Campamento. It sits up in this hanging valley at about 11,000 feet. And the slopes drop, you know, about 1,500 feet down to the valley floor below it. But then you've also got ridges that rise about 2,000 up to 3,000 feet above the camp. So it's just this massive, uh, you know, really large vertical relief in the area. And just about three kilometers up the valley is, is the border with Argentina. So it's just out there, you know, 80 miles up this windy dirt road that nobody else is up there except the mining operation. And, and they're the ones that maintain the, that road all winter long just to get up and down from the camp. Yeah, so I spent a couple of weeks up there with Tim, and before he let me loose, we experienced one storm together. And the so the, the operation up there, we didn't have a whole lot of fancy gadgets or anything. We didn't have any remote weather instrumentation. Um, what we did have was was a high pass on the road where there was a small camp of a couple guys that, that took care of the road and, and worked on some of the machines that came up and down the road. We could get in touch with them on the radio, and and those were guys, those guys were that that pass was a little bit further towards the front country, so it was closer to the valley, and, and probably about thirty kilometers thirty kilometers or so from from the Campamento. So that's one thing we could call those guys up on the radio and be like, "Hey, what's it doing out there?" Uh, but really, it was just up there at the Campamento, and we had a snow study plot. And we'd just get out there and measure snow as it landed on our snowboards. Um, we'd get out there and measure every hour during a storm. So, yeah, without a whole lot of remote instrumentation, we're basically just left to to figure it out on our own. And, and really, it just taught me to be a good observer. So just keeping good records, getting out there like during a storm, measuring the new snow per hour, weighing it, seeing how much water content was in it per hour. Uh, that was, that was what we did. And, um, you know, I, I do remember one of the, the first storms when we were up there together, was measuring this, you know, getting out there every hour. Um, Tim was like in bed reading a book or something and the storm had been ramping up, you know, we kind of, we kind of expected it to ramp up a bit and, it wasn't a whole lot of snow on the ground, but we were we were thinking like it might be enough to to start some avalanches, and and there's I think there's probably enough volume to begin to close off some of the work zones if those avalanches are you know if, if the storm puts down what we think it might, and and that sort of thing. So so I'm out there you know measuring the snow on an hourly basis and. You know, ramps up like two centimeters an hour, three centimeters an hour, five centimeters an hour, ten centimeters an hour. I'm like, oh man, this like I don't, I don't really feel that good about this. And you know, I come to Tim like, hey, it just snowed like ten centimeters an hour. What do you think? You know, and he's like, yep, shut it down. So that was 
that was it. We we shut everything down, and by the time everybody had gotten out of their work zones, you know, natural avalanches were just about starting. So so we, we made a, a pretty close call there, and um, you know, really really taught me quite a bit about storm avalanches, and, and really how how impactful a storm is to natural avalanches. So that's, you know, direct experience up there, storm after storm, just measuring like the, the new snow by the hour really taught me quite a bit about like the, the micro time scales and that, that avalanche cycles um, sometimes work with. And so your mitigation methods at the mine were closures or did you also have any active mitigation going on there? Yeah, we had three avalanches. So the Coombrie had one avalanche up there on the pass. <clears throat> we had one avalanche at the Complimento that was kind of our mainstay gun. And then we also had a, a mobile mount avalanche on, on a track vehicle called a Hagland. And so we used that one to, to go up and down the road and you know try to bring down slides on the road after a storm had happened but really you know a lot of it was was just a passive control where we we pull people out let the slides happen naturally and then maybe we'd we'd come through and do some control with the gun if we could hit that zone uh, the problem was in some places where the work zone was we, we couldn't really get to it very easily with the avalanche um but other places we get we could get to with like some machinery, we could like drive to the top of these small slopes, and we started dumping snow loads on these slopes above the portals, uh, and and that actually became a really effective method to do control on like a smaller scale slope. Was we we would do a round of control with the avalanche or bring down slides enough so that we felt comfortable getting out there on the road with like a snowcat. And then I jump in the snowcat with the operator, and, and you, we'd inch our way up to the top of these smaller slopes, and just start dumping big loads onto those slopes from the top. And that would often, you know, we could we could often flush out a lot of the, the instabilities by doing that, which was was pretty cool way to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting technique. And you're talking about for like lower down uh, road banks and such. Yeah, no, yeah, kind of like a road bank. But the way the the roads cut in, um, you know, they traverse the slope one on top of another for the portals. Got that it. worked pretty well. Like you start from the top, dump a load down, get it to slide, and then you you come around to the next level below that and dump another load on the next slope beneath it, and just kind of work your way top to bottom like that. Boy, that sounds like a pretty fun time. Oh yeah. <laughs> I can tell just watching your reaction as you tell these stories that, that they bring up some pretty fond memories of fun times down there. Yeah, totally. So Matt, it sounds like you guys had some pretty strong storms down in Chile that would affect your forecast area. Um, talk about some of the weather patterns that you experienced down there and, and how has your experiences there um, lent themselves to better forecasting techniques elsewhere for you? Yeah, you know, it was really wild seeing the storms down there. And, well, just first of all, like they, instead of a low pressure rotating 
counterclockwise, they rotate clockwise because it's in the southern hemisphere. So that's that was pretty wild just to see, you know, to begin with. And then, you know, the Andes, the central Andes there, just have massive vertical relief coming, you know, from a short distance from the, the Pacific Ocean. So I, I think fairly frequently a lot of the storms would, like if there was much strength to the wind, we'd see quite a bit of uh, orographic enhancement to the storms. And that's really where I first started picking up on these things called atmospheric rivers. Uh, I do remember a few of the storms down there, some of the, some of the more warmer and wetter ones. You know, you look at the forecast models and you're like, okay, this looks like a, a pretty solid, strong storm coming in. And, you know, as a forecaster, naturally you're, you're, you're looking at water numbers. How much new water is this storm going to put down and how fast? And then what's the, the temperature swing doing? Is it going to be cooling off as the temperature goes on or is it going to be like warming up and then cooling down a little bit? Or, you know, what does the temperature profile look like? So I, I, I was able to witness a couple of storms down there that just knocked my socks off. And later I learned that these things were atmospheric rivers. But the really interesting thing that I found about it was looking at the forecast models, oftentimes it seemed like the water numbers that the models were putting out were often too low. Like this, if it was a strong storm and there was quite a bit of strong winds to it and it had this atmospheric river characteristic to it, uh, like some type of a deep moisture plume coming off the ocean, it seemed like more often than not we would get more precipitation than the models were showing. And, you know, it, it, there could be a number of reasons for that. Could be, you know, the orographic enhancement of the range is, is uh, quite substantial for sure. Um, but also, you know, I think there there was something there. I was like, there must be something here. Like these storms are getting underestimated. I just noticed that there was like something going on with it. So that kind of stuck with me. And then at my time with UDOT, I started looking at atmospheric rivers in conjunction with. Uh, D4 avalanches that came out of Slide Canyon in Provo Canyon. So the Slide Canyon, it comes off the south side of Mount Timpanogos and, and drops like 5,000 vertical feet down to the highway, down to a pretty low elevation. And so for a slide to start up there on the upper reaches of the slopes and make it all the way down the canyon, it's got to be a pretty large slide. Um, and really, you know, basically any, any slide that's big enough to come down and, and cover the road it's probably going to be a D4. So, so I, I compiled all those that we had on record and started sifting through um, the atmospheric river data, which, which comes, you know, I got it in the form of integrated vapor transport, uh, which you, you can get in, in archived data. Um, this guy, Jonathan Rutz, puts it together. He works for, for NOAA. So he helped me out in uh, compiling some of that data and just looking at the the instances of, of D4 avalanches along with the integrated vapor transport, it seemed like, um, you know, there was quite a coincidence there when when we did have high amounts of integrated vapor transport, um, we were getting some of the D4 avalanches. And we did have, you know, it wasn't every time, but it was pretty consistent. Um, so that was that was pretty cool to see that. And then, you know, more recently, um, 
Jonathan Rutz did a, a really great presentation at the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop, um, where him and, and some of the folks there at the CIC compared integrated vapor transport um, in three different areas of the mountain ranges of Colorado, north, central, and south. And they, they compared them to some of the 10 biggest avalanche cycles that they had on record in the past uh, 50 years or so. And, you know, the, what came out of that was, was uh, we were seeing that most of the, the big avalanche cycles that have happened, um, happened as a direct result, or at least during the time when there was high integrated vapor transport uh, moving into, into the region. So it's, it, you know, there's definitely something to it. These atmospheric rivers are knock your socks off type of storms. And I started to compile some information, some data here in the Northwest as well, where we get quite a few of them here, you know, as compared to like Utah and Colorado, it's, they're less frequent that they make it into the inner mountains. Um, but here in the Northwest, we get them, you know, fairly frequently. It's definitely not a, not an unusual thing to get an atmospheric river. But the interesting thing that I'm, that I'm starting to see is that uh, a lot of the forecast models during the strong storms and the big avalanche cycles, it seems like the models don't do quite as well. Like they're, they're often a little bit underpredicted um, or even a lot underpredicted just based on the, the individual storm. So it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's a work in progress that some of the, the data that I'm looking at here, but it, it's interesting. And I think there's, you know, there's something to it. So um, yeah, for me, being able to, to realize and recognize when there is a strong atmospheric river can be really important to avalanche forecasting because uh, it, it may mean that, you know, we may get a lot more precip than some of the weather models are advertising. Matt, I was hoping you could maybe go back a little bit and just explain to the listeners what are the characteristics of an atmospheric river. I think it's been a term that's been thrown around quite a bit in the last couple, last few years. Um, and so maybe you could just provide a good explanation. Yeah, totally. So yeah, an atmospheric river is a, a narrow plume of moisture that comes in off the ocean. And it, it's they're generally characterized by uh, high moisture content. So the way they're characterized is, is twofold. It's through um, the amount of moisture that the air mass is carrying, and then also through the, the velocity of the wind that that moisture is moving with. So the, yeah, there, there's a, a new scale that actually just came out in the past year called the AR scale. And it's, I definitely encourage everyone listening to this to, uh, to check it out because it, it's pretty cool. It kind of puts them on, on par with something like a hurricane um, where we can, we can measure the intensity and duration of an atmospheric river. Fairly narrow areas, you know, just off the top of my head, somewhere like 30 to 50 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, depending on where those things are aimed, it can really make quite a bit of a difference. And just over a, over a span of, of 50 miles, you might see drastically different snowfall or precipitation amounts between two zones. Yeah, totally. Right. Certainly a challenge for an avalanche forecaster to get the timing of that right and then the spatial variability of an event like that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 
thanks for sharing your thoughts on those, Matt. And, and that scale is definitely new to me. Um, I'm going to check that out. Where can I, where can I find out more information about that? Yeah. The center for Western weather and water extremes is, uh, a website through the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the UC San Diego. And they've got, you know, they host like the Atmospheric River Hub, basically. All the new research that comes out, um, you can check it out on the website. And, and right there on the, on the website is the, the new scale to characterize the strength and impacts of atmospheric rivers. All right. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to that so folks can check that out. Yeah. Well, Matt, it's it's uh it's great to hear about some of your different experiences throughout the globe forecasting for snow and avalanches. Um, throughout all of this, it seems like you've had a goal of of trying to stay safe in the mountains and trying to bring about a message so that other people can stay safe in the mountains, whether they're just trying to go to work in their car or whether they're a gold miner in Chile. Yeah or whether they're a skier, snowboarder, snowmobiler in, in Washington, um, safety is, is clearly on your mind. Um, what, are, what are some thoughts that you have on avalanche worker safety as a whole? Yeah, well, I've had the opportunity to work alongside many incredible, incredible individuals and unfortunately have lost some of these colleagues and friends through accidents while they were working. You know, I was working with UDOT when Craig Patterson, a teammate and fellow avalanche technician on the on the crew, died in an avalanche while touring uh, solo in Big Cottonwood Canyon. And, you know, a few years later at Grand Teton National Park, where I work, um, Gary Falk, a mountain guide and colleague, died while attempting to free a stuck rope at the rappel while guiding on the Grand Teton. So, yeah, there are so many things that happen due to accidents like this in the workplace and, and on so many levels. So these were seminal events in each of those industries, and really they changed the way that both of them operate. You know, so these things, they weigh on us, and they weigh on me, and I've, I've certainly struggled with it. Um, so I think, you know, to begin, it's, it's not only okay, but it's recommended to seek out therapy after going through an accident like this. I can also say that it's important to know that we are honoring our lost colleagues because we've learned from these hard lessons. It's important to realize where we were then and where we are now as, as an industry as a whole. So before Craig's accident, I literally skied a first descent off, to, off a 15,000-foot peak while working down in Chile. And while I knew it was pushing the limit of what I should be doing for work, I got away with it. And all seemed fine, except you know, at the end of the day, I was kind of scratching my head asking myself, you know, was my professional risk acceptance level a little bit too high? Um, you know, I thought it was actually a few notches too high in that case. So, you know, nowadays we're teaching full lessons on field worker safety in a professional level one course. So, you know, yeah, I think we have and continue to make changes to make that stick. However, you know, it's up to us to keep them in place. Um, so every time we do a pre-trip plan before going out into the field, every time we turn on that satellite tracking device, we, you know, it's important that we remember um, and that we honor our lost heroes 
in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it, it can certainly be heavy, but you know, I, I think it's important just to, to, yeah, like like I said, just to honor our lost heroes. Um, you know, like like for Craig, it was in his style. You know, he was one of the first ones that I ever saw leaning over a howitzer with his hands behind his back, you know, nonchalantly reading the azimuth numbers off the panoramic the panoramic telescope. You know, during during a, a mission. And, you know, for Gary, I'll always remember that he was able to question your confidence just by giving a little head nod and, and speaking a, a quick word with zero hesitation. And it could be something that, you know, maybe like looked slightly wrong with a rope system or, or just something, but he'd just give you this little head nod and say, hey, what about this? You know, what about that? And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this guy's, you know, he's making you think. So it, it's important to honor their legacy. And, uh, you know, yeah, I guess having seen where the industry has been before and after these accidents and, and having been through them, um, at least myself, and what I try to do as a professional is just uh, to bring that to the podium when I am working out there and, um, you know, doing my pre-trip plan like as professional as possible and just keeping in mind like when I'm out there working, I'm working and my goal is to make it home safe. Right. And it seems like there are some solid systematic changes that have taken place within some of these organizations after accidents happen. And that's, you know, we know that we're not always going to get it right. <laughs> this is These are complex issues in the mountains in a constantly changing environment. And, um, I think you, you put it well when you said honoring, honoring our heroes by, by trying to be safer in the mountains by them. So, so let's talk snow saws a little bit, Matt. You are the owner of a business, the manufacturer, the engineer, the sharpener of Primo Snow and Avalanche snow saws. So what are these all about? Well, it's been a, a pretty interesting project to be a part of and um, so, you know, it all started, I somehow ended up with this classic old aluminum snow saw and I had the thing for years. Like um, a lifelink one? Yeah. Yeah. The thing, you know, it was great. The teeth were beginning to wear down and I just couldn't find another one. I was like, I, these are, these are like the, the ones, you know, this is the classic design. I really like the way that they cut through snow. They stay, they stay, um, straight you know they, they cut solid blocks in the snow but you know it turned out there was just no other company that that made any snow saw that was similar to that or, or how i liked it you know they're all too flimsy too thin too heavy i just i couldn't really find anything that i liked so i started looking around into what it would cost to just to buy the you know the material straight and, and get a laser cut from a metal shop locally um, so it turned out I needed to like create a CAD file for the shop to cut them out. And so I, I set out to design a saw that had a similar look and feel to that, that classic design, but I wanted to try to make it a little bit better, improve on it and make it lighter. Um, so yeah, I searched around and, and found a place here in Washington that, that could get the material in and, and do the cutting for me. And I worked with, uh, one of the guys there to, to create the, the CAD file and away we went, you know, I 
made a number of different prototypes experimenting with different thicknesses and different sizes and shapes before you know finally setting settling on the the current design El Profesional, yeah it's it's one of the lighter snow saws out there for sure it's it weighs in at about 3.7 ounces you know with the sheath the sheath weighs a little bit so it's like four and a half ounces um yeah it's it's just a little over it's right at 50 centimeters long so it ends up being kind of the perfect length you know to, to cut out wedges for compression tests you know even though a compression test column is only 30 by 30 you kind of need a longer saw than that to be able to angle in to cut out a wedge so i think it's the perfect size for that um yeah and you know one of the bigger things too is i started looking at saw thicknesses in in how they perform in cutting snow but then i also did a little bit of background research and i found out that you know under the the direction of Bruce Jameson, that um, somebody actually did a study on the thicknesses of snow saws and how they affect uh, propagation saw test results. And they were recommending a two millimeter thickness saw. And so I was like, okay, well, that's a no-brainer. It's got to be two millimeters because that's what they recommend. And still what you see these days are saws that are out there that are different thicknesses than that. So I think that is it's a small detail, but it, it actually does make a bit of a difference. You know, if we're all using the same thickness saws, then we're going to be able to compare our results for those propagation saw tests a little bit better. Right. Yeah, we have enough variables out there. We might as well try and <laughs> get what we can to be constant. <laughs> um, well, I've I've really enjoyed working with the snow saw that I got from you, and and uh, I know everybody else would enjoy it too. Where can they? Where can they purchase one? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, PrimoSnowAvalanche.com is the website. And I'm on Instagram as well, uh, PrimoSnowAvalanche. Cool. On Instagram. So, yeah. Hand sharpened in Leavenworth, Washington by Matt Promomo. Yeah, it's a super fun thing to, to be doing, like, especially in the fall. I, I get all excited for winter and, you know, get a bunch of saws in and sharpen them up and, get them all ready to roll. So it, it's been fun to, to be setting them out. I, I think, you know, at this point they've, they've made it out to like five or six different countries around the world. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. How many saws did you manufacture and sell last year? Oh, uh, I sold about 120. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's enough to, you know, keep me busy enough in the off season. Yeah. Awesome. Well, another, yeah. another thing I like about it is the notch for the 30 centimeters is clearly marked. And then it also has a bottle opener on it. Yeah, totally. The bottle opener on the last tooth is key. And now I'm I'm also um, hand engraving, like I created a little template, and I'm just engraving centimeter marks on the top of the saw. Oh, cool. So kind of a, a new, exciting part of it that, you know, it just, just gives it uh, a little bit more, a little bit better look to it, I think, to have that, not just a 30 centimeter mark, but you can measure all the way up, you know, through the length of the saw. Yeah. Great. Well, Matt, it's been great to sit down and chat with you today. I think we could go on and on for a while more and, and, uh, maybe we're going to have to have a part two to our conversation at some point. <laughs> um, but all the best to you and, and the forecast team that you work with up at NWAC. Yeah. Thanks so much, Caleb. Thanks so much everybody for listening. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Cheers. Yeah, I'll see you later.
Oh man, that was such a great conversation I had with Matt Promomo. I really enjoyed that, and and I, honestly, I felt like we could have kept recording for another hour or two. But uh, thanks, Matt, for imparting some of your your experiences and knowledge and wisdom on the community. Appreciate it. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. If you're really enjoying the podcast, go over to Apple Podcasts and review us. Of course, you can give us a follow on the socials. We're at the Avalanche Hour Podcast, reluctantly on Facebook and Instagram. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. To see more of his work or get in touch with him, you can visit his website, www.miket.com. Music on today's episode was performed by Ketza with Over and Out and Own World. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. <laughs>